So I just got asked how the weight loss thing is going, so I thought I'd tell you. Uh, this week, actually 31.8, so I'm calling it 32 pounds down. So I am, I'm not enjoying it, by the way. I am Greek, and <laughs> and we like to eat and breed. But anyway, big fat Greek eating breeders. That's what we are. Anyway, yeah, so I've been thinking about what it's going to be like when this is over, because May 1st is the deadline for the scum of the earth building portion at least. And uh, I'd like to lose some more weight after that, honestly. So I may try and keep going. But there's this fear that I have. I mean, even though I already feel better than I have in a long time. I mean, I honestly feel stronger just walking across a room. Um, it's easier to get up out of chairs. It's, uh, you know, easier to do things. Uh, than it was before, overall. I, it, there's a, a freedom that I've gained from losing uh, weight. But, but there's this fear I have of, of what's going to happen once we hit May 1st, because I might go back to the way it was before. I could do that very easily. I could do that very, very easily. I, I, I'd like it when... I intentionally blow the diet for a day or when I don't go to work out. I mean, it's terrible to say, isn't it? All these people say, it's so wonderful. I feel so good when I go work out. I feel great afterwards. And I, I always feel terrible. Um, so I don't think it's, it's out of the question that I might revert to my old ways very easily. <laughs> I was talking to uh, a guy who used to be in prison this week, spent several years in prison for white-collar crimes and is currently in prison ministry. And he was telling me that the recidivism rate, which is the rate at which people from jail go back into jail, is 68% throughout the country for the past 25 years. 68% of people who get out of jail are arrested again and put back in prison at some point, which means that by far the majority of people who pay their debt to society end up back in. I don't know if you guys saw um, the movie The Shawshank Redemption, but in there they had a couple scenes of guys who, when faced with the idea of freedom, didn't want to leave. Didn't want to leave. One was the librarian guy, the guy who did the bookmobile thing. The other guy, uh, I think, committed suicide rather than face time outside. And I think, in some ways, I can relate to that because I'm going. I, you know, there's a there's a cost of freedom that is difficult to pay. There's a reason to stay in. In my case, encased in the prison of my own fat, um, 
I, I think in the case of some prisoners, there's a routine. There's structure that they find inside. Uh, you know, in the middle of all the physical abuse, some sexual abuse, verbal abuse definitely, uh, the inability to go off and do things that you're created to do, that there's still some comfort in those kinds of, of prisons. And it's really interesting because we say that Jesus came to set us free. That Jesus died to free the prisoners. And he wasn't just talking about people who were in jail because of some crime they had committed, but also people who were in a prison perhaps of their own making or the world's making or the devil's making, where their souls were not free to go and be what they were created to be. And today we're going to talk about this whole topic. Because today we see in the Scriptures Jesus literally setting a prisoner free. I thought about showing a clip from the Passion of the Christ, but this part of the movie is so graphic and so violent and so bloody, in some ways so evil, that it jarred me this afternoon. And I thought, there's no way I'm going to be able to bring this clip and show it at scum. I, it's probably the most accurate depiction of Jesus' trial before the Roman authorities and his flogging that has ever been put onto celluloid, but I, I just couldn't do it. And so I'm not going to. Uh, rather, I'm going to just talk us through it. So if you have a Bible, open to Mark chapter 15. I didn't know what to call this sermon. PB&J stands for Pilate, Barabbas, and Jesus. That came to me very, very late last night as I lie in my bed. <laughs> Probably thinking about food. I don't know. But and very often people refer this passage uh, to being Jesus' trial before Pilate. But I, I think probably rather I would call it the trial of Pilate because whenever you're judging Jesus, you're judging yourself, really. And, and when you read the passage, you'll get the impression that the person who's the most uneasy during this interrogation is Pilate because indeed that was the case. And then uh, I thought, well, a couple of weeks ago I talked about judging God when Jesus was before the Jewish high council, the Sanhedrin, and I called it judging God. And I thought, well, maybe we can call this judging God part two because now he's before the Gentiles, before the rest of the world, the Roman world. And he is being tried as well. So you could call it that. If you remember from the sermon a couple of weeks ago, uh, one of the things I said was that if you don't allow Jesus to be God, then you will crucify him. If you don't allow Jesus to be God, 
then you will end up crucifying him in some manner. So kind of a, as Dave said, somber topic for tonight. Mark 15, verse 1. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Very early in the morning. So we've gone through the entire night now. Remember, we started with the Last Supper. We went into the Garden of Gethsemane. From there, we talked about Peter's denial, the soldiers coming and arresting Jesus, his kind of weird night court in front of the Jewish high council, which, which then condemned him in the morning. They made their plans, and they condemned him in the morning. And then they go, and they take him to Pilate, which is the first stop, actually, on, on many stops that Jesus will make throughout the day after getting no sleep at all. And he's already been, been hit and beaten up to a degree. Now, Pilate, according to historical records, would see people in the morning, very early in the morning, at, at sunrise, actually. And, and it's because Pilate liked to get his governmental business out of the way before lunchtime, and then he would take the rest of the day off, have a leisurely afternoon. So Pilate is planning to relax in the afternoon. the same afternoon that Jesus will be crucified. So it's kind of a weird dichotomy. Pilate's getting out of the way so we can relax, and Jesus is in the thick of it and is going to be crucified down the road. And the Jews are taking Jesus to Pilate because they're not allowed to kill somebody in the situation they're in, with Rome being the overseers, the governmental ruling establishment. The power of life and death was only in the Roman government. And so they've got, if they want to kill Jesus, they've got to somehow get the Romans on board. They've got to broker a deal. They've got to make this thing happen, uh, even though it's out of their control. So they go to Pilate, who was the Roman governor in the area. Now let me give you a little background on Pilate. Pilate really, I don't think, liked being in that part of the world and governing very much. It was known as a hotbed of insurrection. Think for a minute, if you will, what it's like in the Middle East right now. Do you know how fanatical people are there? Think about it for a minute. I mean, there are things like jihads, right, that that pop up. People who are... Suicide bombers. They believe in their cause so much they are willing to kill themselves as long as they can kill a few of the enemy. Women can do this as well as young men can do this. Even girls have been known to strap explosives to themselves. If you're familiar with the fanaticism over the land and the disagreement between the Palestinians and the Israelis about who owns what and the kind of things that happen there, 
you all understand why Marcus Hyde wants to go with a peacekeeping team to try and make things better. Because the place, from my vantage point, is crazy. They're fanatics. And they were fanatical back then, maybe even more so in the first century than they are now. And so it's impossible to govern that kind of a people and make it okay. For example, Pilate got in a lot of trouble when he first became governor because he took some money from the temple treasury to make an aqueduct for the city of Jerusalem. An aqueduct brings fresh water in, right? It's a good thing. But you don't touch the temple treasury. Temple treasury is God's money. That's holy money. That's under the control of the high priests and the council. And they were upset. Pilate had a riot on his hands. He brought Roman standards into the city. You know, those eagles, those golden eagles on the long poles. And they went crazy. Don't bring those idolatrous symbols into our holy city. Another riot on his hands. He had a revolutionary movement in Galilee. And to squash it, he took the blood from some of the Galileans who had been involved in the insurrection and he mixed their blood with the temple sacrifices. And that really pissed him off. So Pilate is trying to walk a line between we are Rome, we will do as we please, you are our subjects, and, okay, I can't take him off too much. And so he's caught in this balancing act, and right now he's at the place where he wants to give a little. He wants to appease them somewhat. And Jesus is caught in this balancing act. That's what's going on here historically. So they have obviously told Pilate their problems with Jesus because Pilate asks Jesus in verse 2, are you the king of the Jews? See, they were bringing various charges. We find out in the Gospel of Luke there were basically three charges they had brought to Jesus. One was that of treason, that he was a king claiming to be a king. Nobody can claim to be a king unless Rome says you can be a king. And then if you are a king, you're a king who submits to Rome, like Herod did. So to claim you're a king is treason. That is a offense punishable by death. That will be probably the only real accusation that Pilate would pay attention to. They also said that he was... Um, threatening the nation, subverting the nation. Which is strange because Jesus was doing just the opposite. I mean, he was a peaceful guy. And they also said that, that he didn't want his subjects to pay taxes to Caesar, which again is an outright lie because Jesus said, give to God what is God and give to Caesar what is Caesar's. So they bring three charges against him. That he's a threat that he encourages tax evasion, and that he's a person who should be tried for treason. But the only thing that really concerns Pilate is the treason. Jesus answers this way. He says, you have said so. You've said it. You've said so. 
Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so. What kind of answer is that? Is this Jesus being a smart aleck? I mean, seriously. I love this answer. I love this about Jesus. <laughs> I mean, yes and no. That's what Jesus is saying. Yes and no. Yes, I'm the king of the Jews. No, not in the way that you think. You have just called me the king of the Jews, even though you don't believe it. And that's ironic. Because I really am. You see what I'm saying? I mean, it's like, a, I'm going, I really appreciate this about Jesus. It's kind of an in-your-face answer. He should be the hero of every scum-of-the-earth person who wants to be snarky with authority. You have said so, Jesus replied. Verse 3, the chief priest accused him of many things. I've told you about that already. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. So Jesus continues to be silent. He was silent before the Jewish high council, and now he's silent before Pilate. He is fulfilling Scripture at this point as a lamb is silent before its shearers, so no sound came out of his mouth. He feels no need to defend himself. He has been very public in his ministry. He said everything he had to say in full hearing of people in broad daylight. He doesn't need to defend himself. Now this is interesting. Now this is an aside. But Maybe Christians should pay attention to this. Because we live in a society now where very often we are on the other end of a microscope being criticized very often, and Jesus makes no reply. What makes us think that we can talk so much? Maybe we ought to shut up and follow the example of Jesus. As a matter of fact, if you read the early commentators, I'm talking like, you know, Cyprian and Augustine and um, Clement and those kind of people very early on in, in, in church history, they mention this about Jesus, the patience that Jesus has to sit there and be accused and not reply. Because you know what? They were being persecuted. They were being led to death. They understood what was going on here because they were living it. And they felt like they didn't have to do anything except follow the Example of Jesus, I'm going, why aren't we? We're not being persecuted in this way. Why don't we follow suit? Why don't we just shut up sometimes? Honestly, I have to go. If I had my, my way, I would, I would require an interview with every TV preacher, evangelist, telehost, whatever you want to call them, and ask them, please, please, stop talking so much. I mean, quit commenting on world events, if you would, please. I don't care if it's a hurricane that you want to say is God's wrath and judgment, or if you want to comment on, you know, the Venezuelan president, or if you want to comment on what's going on in Iran or the Middle East right now, um, if you want to comment on homosexuality or the AIDS epidemic. I don't. Just shut up. Just shut up. 
take an example from Jesus. That really isn't the point of the sermon. But it's in here. Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. He's amazed that Jesus isn't trying to defend himself. Verse 6, Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. Barabbas. Barabbas. You know what his first name was? That's his last name. Jesus, exactly. His first name was Jesus, Joshua, Yeshua. Jesus Barabbas. We got two Jesuses here. Which is one of the reasons, I think, in verse 9, Pilate asked, do you want me to release you the king of the Jews? Because maybe they were calling for the release of Jesus. He wanted to make sure which Jesus they were talking about. Barabbas is an interesting name. Bar means son of. Son of Abba. Son of a father. Son of a daddy. That's a pretty generic name when you think about it. Somebody's his dad. I mean, Jesus in those days, um, because they didn't know any better, would have called the Jesus of Nazareth that we talk about, Jesus bar Joseph. They would have said he was the son of Joseph. They say that elsewhere in Scripture, Jesus the son of Joseph. Don't we know him? Aren't his sisters here? His brothers? But really, he was the son of the Most High. He just got done admitting to that in the last chapter of Mark. Jesus bar Yahweh, if that's possible, versus Jesus Barabbas. Jesus, the son of the Most High God, versus Jesus, the son of an earthly father. I think that's important. You know, you read these things and you know they're historically accurate and you're going, yeah, but God was telling us a story here. And he was picking the names of the characters way in advance for a reason. The son of an earthly father versus the son of a heavenly father. Verse 8, the crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. And then he says, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. Other translations say it was out of envy that the chief priests had handed Jesus of Nazareth over to Pilate. Pilate's aware of what's going on here. He knows that they're jealous of Jesus and his popularity, that they're afraid of his power, and they're trying to get rid of him. He understands this. He's a politician. 
But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him! Can you feel Pilate trying to make it okay here? Trying to release Jesus maybe? In the other Gospels, you get a clearer picture of it. Mark kind of the, the very succinct version. But even in Mark's version, you get the idea. He keeps asking him over and over again, like, well, you don't, wouldn't you want me to release Jesus, the, the one you call King of the Jews? And I think he's being a little snide when he says that, because obviously Jesus doesn't look like a king at all at that particular point. But they're calling out for no, the, the murderer. Other Gospels say he was also a thief. But in verse 15, wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. So he's playing the political game here. And he hands Jesus over to be crucified so that he appeases them a little bit because down the road he's going to take it back. I just want to say that when I read some of the commentaries, especially the old, old commentaries, you can see a hint of anti-Semitism here. They, they, they try to say things like, the ones who call for the crucifixion are more to blame than the ones who crucified him. And I just want to say, and I'm going to use very strong language here, bullshit. That's the kind of thinking that makes the Holocaust possible. We are all guilty of Jesus' crucifixion. There were two trials, one before Jews, one before non-Jews. And even though the Jews may have called for his crucifixions, it is the Gentiles, the rest of us, who had him beaten and who had him crucified. The cross was a Roman symbol of political power. It was not originally a religious symbol at all. What the cross said was, this is the kind of thing that happens to people who get in our way. When Jesus was a young boy growing up, there was an insurrection. They crucified thousands of Jews. All during Jesus' lifetime growing up, there were crucifixions of people. And it said... We're putting you on display if you try to usurp power from us. If you try to stand up to us, we are going to come down on you and we're going to put you on display and you're going to be dying for days. People had a difficult time dying when they were crucified because when you get crucified, you basically suffocate. It takes a long, long time. It's a very slow and painful death. And it's like a billboard. For anybody who walks by, they put them in the public places to die. It was a billboard saying, you mess with us, and this is what happens to you. The cross was a sign of the political and military might of imperial Rome. Make no mistake about it. It was not a religious symbol until our Lord and Savior was crucified on.
we're all responsible for Jesus' death. All of us. Now, excuse me for a second. You'd be pleased to, I've just gone over all that, so I'm just getting to the place where I was. There's a lot of stuff here. There really is to look at. I, I think there's an um, interesting application for us as, as modern Christians. It's something about mob mentality. I mean, we're, we are living in an increasingly post-Christian culture. Christianity used to be the dominant force in American culture. Uh, it is no longer the dominant force in American culture. It used to be most people knew at least the basic Bible stories. Uh, they really don't anymore. It used to be that most everybody acceded to a Christian morality. We all knew certain things were wrong. We all knew certain ways of doing things were right. Well, that's not the case anymore. And And I think that living in this mob of humanity called America, I think that um, we are prone to going along with the crowd. I mean, what do you do when you're at a party and a bunch of people are talking about Christianity and how stupid it is and how much of a crutch Jesus is? I mean, what do you say? What do you do? I really do think that if you don't submit to Jesus as Lord, I think you're going to want to crucify him at some point. And, and, and you might feel pulled to at least be silent while everybody else shouts out in maybe a milder way, crucify him intellectually, crucify him spiritually, crucify him emotionally. There's another thing that I see here is that we really can't serve God and, and keep our power very well. There's this interplay between Jesus and Pilate, which, which kind of says to, to hold on to your power, you have to make moral concessions. I mean, Pilate really didn't want to kill Jesus. We got that from the passage, right? So... There's that. Sometimes we're tempted to make moral concessions because we want to hold on to our power. Maybe we want to hold on to a, a relationship we have. I know it's interesting. I've talked to Christian guys who, who, who want to remain sexually pure until they're married. And the girl they're dating is saying, look, buddy, I, I've been waiting a long time for us to hop in the sack, how come we're not doing it? And it's 
you want to hold on to that relationship, maybe you've got to make a moral concession. As opposed to letting go of the relationship and letting go of the benefits of being with somebody and all that kind of stuff. Sometimes you're at work and, and you're asked to do something unethical. I, I don't know if you guys, you know, when you're, when you're lowest on the totem pole, it doesn't happen very often. It still can happen. Like you're asked to not count the tips or something because we don't want the federal government to know that we're paying our employees more than we actually are, because then we've got to pay higher taxes. So you want to hold on to the power of having a job or maybe being a shift manager or whatever it is that you are, lower on the totem pole, you're asked to make moral concessions. It's interesting to me. Getting back to what I think is the main part of the passage. There's this whole thing about freeing Barabbas. This is interesting, I think. There were people who loved Jesus who were doing nothing. The disciples were watching this thing happen. They knew that Jesus was the Messiah, but they were silent. They were afraid. There were people who hated Jesus, who didn't believe he was the Messiah, who were trying to kill him. There was Pilate, who knew that Jesus was a good man, and didn't really want him to die. Thought he was deluded about being the Messiah, that he was mistaken, but he was a good guy overall. And then you have a guy like Barabbas, who was totally clueless in the story. He doesn't know what's going on. And the truth of the matter is, Jesus died for everybody. All those people. He's dying for them. He's dying in their place. But this is the weird thing. The only one who really experiences it that day is Barabbas. I mean, picture Barabbas for a minute. Pretend you're Barabbas. You are in a jail cell. And not just any jail cell, but a first century jail cell. Not exactly the Shangri-La we have now at the Denver County Jail. I'm being ironic intentionally. But it was a lot worse back then. You're shackled. There's hardly any food. You're mistreated. It's dark. There's no lights. They beat you whenever they feel like it. And then all of a sudden, you're standing out in the light of day, and some guy that you never saw before is being sent to the cross, and you're free. That's just got to be one of the most soul and mind-jarring events in Barabbas' life ever. 
If you ever heard about Jesus, he knew that Jesus was a great guy, that he healed people, that he fed people, that he taught the truth. And the fact that you're being released, being a murderer, being a thief, and in jail justly, that means the fact that you're being released while this guy who has committed no crime and, in fact, has helped people, is being put in prison and sent to a death that you should have had, is got to be... I mean, really, honestly, Barabbas may have been the only guy on that day, on that Friday, who had a clue about what's going on, about the substitutionary atonement that Jesus was accomplishing for the whole world. You were the only guy who gets it on that Friday. Because you look at Jesus going to his death and you are free. You are free. I don't know how I explain this, but there's a reason I'm a pastor. And the reason I'm a pastor is because I have been Barabbas. I have been set free by the work of Jesus Christ. When I think about the darkness of my mind, when I think about my, it's weird how these two things go together, when I think about my insecurity and my arrogance, sometimes arrogance proceeds from insecurity. And on top of that, people-pleasing, so that you can have some kind of security. When I think about that kind of bondage that I was in, pandering to people, trying to be nice, trying to be liked, thinking that that was all there was to this life, not worrying about how I came off to God, worrying about how I came off to everybody else. And I'll tell you, humanity is a cruel taskmaster. I mean, there are not two people who will give you the same answer about how you should be. And if you are looking to find your fulfillment, your self-worth, in other people's opinions, good luck. Good luck. You will be miserable. And I was miserable. And to be set free from that, just to have the knowledge that I'm looking for approval from the most holy, righteous, merciful God. I mean... It's so great. It's so peaceful. If you don't know that kind of peace, I, I, I urge you to quit trying to find your fulfillment in other people and submit your life to Jesus Christ. Accept what He's done for you. Let Him take your place. Let Him have the consequences of you trying to please people, of the insecurity, of the arrogance, and you accept the fullness, the confidence, the courage that comes from knowing Him and pleasing only Him. I think about how I used to worship women. I really did. I really did. I worshiped women. And I just got to tell you, men, that if, if you expect to 
worship a woman and have her please be pleased with you for the rest of your life, I mean, you're going to be one frustrated dude. You really are. Because believe it or not, they kind of like a guy who doesn't think they're all that. In fact, I know girls right now, if, if a guy thinks they're really, really, really cool, they will avoid you like the plague because they know better. They know they're not worthy to be worshipped. And if you think they're worthy to be worshipped, then you are a putz. And they don't want to be hooked up with a the putz. They want to be hooked up with somebody who's going to challenge them, who's going to help them be what they're meant to be, who might even stand up to them and correct them sometimes. Somebody who's got some backbone. Now, I'm not saying they want somebody who's a jerk and a misogynist. I'm not saying that at all. But the reverse is true as well. Girls, the, the quickest way to, to get a guy to run away is to fawn all over him and let him know how available you are. Give us the pleasure of the chase, please. Because we know we're not that cool down deep inside. You get freed from all this kind of stuff. Honestly, when you come to Christ, you get a, a new perspective. You have someone else to worship. You have someone else to please. When I think about my tendency for, for passivity or toward anger, I don't know how to put this, but these two go together very often as well. Very often we call it passive-aggressive behavior, right? But I don't know how to put this, but Jesus, for the last close to 40 years, has been setting me free from that kind of prison. I don't know how to explain the fact that I was spiritually dead and now I'm alive. It's kind of like trying to explain the Grand Canyon to a baby in the womb. I don't know how you do it. I mean, how do you explain what it's like to pass from death to life? I there is a life that's waiting for us that, because Jesus has taken our place and Jesus has suffered and died and Jesus has gone to hell so we don't have to. In that way, we are all Barabbai. We are all sons and daughters of an earthly father. Every one of us, right? Anybody here not have an earthly father? This is not preached very often, I don't think, but I, I'm going to say that in this story, if there's anybody you want to identify with, identify with Barabbas. Because you're in a prison for stuff that you've done or stuff that you haven't done, and Jesus is trying to set you free. Jesus has set you free. The question is, will you come out of the prison. Can you imagine for a minute if they had gone to release Barabbas and he said, no, thanks very much. I like it right here. I'm not coming out. 
I like the Roman prison. Can you imagine? But it's possible. It's possible. Because living outside in the daylight, Barabbas had to face a whole new life. What would he do now? Would he go back to the same old life that got him in a Roman prison in the first place? Or would he look at the man who had sprung him out of prison and follow him? That's the question. We're given a choice since we are all a rabbi. Are you going to walk out of the prison? Are you going to follow Christ or go back in? Maybe you've never made that step out of the prison. I I encourage you today to do that. It can be as simple as kneeling down in prayer and asking the Lord to take away your sins. To, To be grateful and to thank Him for His death in your place. Or maybe you're one of those people who have come out into the light of freedom and said, you know, it was easier back in prison. I'm going to go back. And you've been back there for a while and you're going, what was I thinking? This is the stupidest thing ever. I thought I left this life behind and here I am again. You know what? You're still free. You can walk out any time. All you got to do is turn and walk away. Walk toward Jesus and follow Him. In either case, I invite you to come before the Lord and to talk to Him. We're going to have some folks back over here in the prayer room uh, during the last worship set. If you have something you would like to pray about, please go back and talk to them. Maybe for the first time, you want to come to Jesus and accept what He's done for you in terms of taking your place. Or maybe you're saying, I have been back in prison. It's the stupidest thing ever. I need to come back out. Go back. Let your brothers and sisters help walk you out into the light of freedom and help you to follow Christ again. I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, as we look forward to your story in the Gospel of Mark, make it real for us. Make it real how you gladly suffered and died in our places. Lord, I beg you, if there are folks here who are afraid to make that first step out of the dungeon into your light, that you would give them courage. That even as you are led away to the cross, you look upon them with love and go gladly to suffer their fate. Lord, I pray for those who have gone back into prison. that you would be with them and lead them out. 
once again into the light of your presence and the purpose and the joy and the wholeness. Help us, Jesus. Thank you very much for what you've done for us. Amen.